I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and you're listening to Podcast Playlist. This week on the show, we're listening to a sampling of the best new and notable podcasts. Here at Podcast Playlist, we air a lot of personal narrative stories. These days, most people just call them podcasts. But for those of us in the biz, they're also known as audio documentaries. These personal stories have the potential to move us, create empathy, and drive positive change. Even the act of telling one's story can be transformative. At least, that's what we like to tell ourselves. Jess Shane isn't so sure. Jess is an independent podcast producer and documentarian. She used to work here at CBC Podcasts. And in her new series, Shocking, Heartbreaking, Transformative, she's taking a hard look at the stories we tell ourselves about the stories we tell you. Jess Shane joins me now from Brooklyn, New York. Jess, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much. That was a great intro. So what are the issues you're trying to unpack with this show? I think there's kind of a cluster of issues that are most interesting to me. One of them is that there's been this huge boom in the last decade of storytelling, um, like storytelling as a means of rallying political support, storytelling as a means of fundraising, as a means of becoming an influencer, as you know, storytelling is the tactic for getting the word out and getting people engaged in something. And that really has folded into our kind of like media landscape in terms of what people watch and listen to. You know, when I was a teenager, when you thought about documentary, you thought about like Ken Burns, Planet Earth. And these days, everybody is watching documentary. And so what is that about? And what does that mean? I think that something that I was thinking about when I was working at the CBC, I was constantly being asked to go and find stories, you know, and I, and I, like in your intro, I was like, well, this must be great for everybody involved. This must be great for the world. But at a certain point, I just started to feel a little bit of an ick about it. And I was like, oh, like, this is like this raw resource that is out there for the taking. Like, I don't know if the people that are giving me these stories freely, like really know what is happening with them. I don't even know if I know what's really happening with them. And it kind of created this crisis for me of like, what is media even for? So I don't know. That was kind of the existential side of things. So it started with an existential crisis, essentially, is what you're saying. Precisely. The beginnings <laughs> of any good podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because to explore these issues, you try this experiment in the series by intentionally breaking a lot of the rules of documentary making. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, so when you work at a national broadcaster like the CBC, like you're given this list of guidelines, like, okay, don't pay your subjects. Um, don't accept gifts from them because it could create an environment of coercion. You are also supposed to, I, I mean, you're not really supposed to talk about what's 
what's going to happen afterwards. That's not like the norm of what you're expected to do. You're not usually talking about sort of the exchange that's taking place. What's in it for them? What's in it for you? Beyond these sorts of cliches and mythology that we're taught about storytelling being inherently good. I think that gives people a good idea of the parameters of standard journalism and 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 how that applies to the documentary. Yeah. But then you go and break all these rules. Yeah. How well do you think that worked when you broke the rules? Oh, gosh. I mean, the point of the series is sort of performative. Like I posted this ad on Craigslist. I was like, do you want to be the star of a documentary? Come share your story. Get paid to tell your story in a podcast about media ethics. So it's like kind of a bit of a underhanded like bait and switch a little bit unless you're like reading closely. I posted this ad on Craigslist. I got 200 people that came. I interviewed 30 of them. I picked four of them. But I mean, the rules didn't totally work. Like I paid my subjects and I realized that payment isn't the thing that's making this environment coercive. It's coercive because the world is structured in a way that oppresses certain people and leaves them in a position where they feel that telling their story is a viable option where, you know, support or visibility in the world is not. I thought that was really interesting because that's not something that was ever talked about um, when I was told not to pay people. We didn't talk about like what else could be coercive about this situation. You know, so I think the ways in which the rules where I tried to break the rules and it didn't work quite the way I expected, that was really interesting. And that was my real goal to kind of tease apart these rules and figure out what was important about them and what was not. And what kind of feedback have you gotten from other podcasters and audio doc makers about this series? My inbox has never been so full. It's kind of wild. Just like I've had people who are from reporting backgrounds, from news backgrounds, from academic backgrounds, you know, other podcast producers. So many people come to me to share their version of a story when something went awry with the subject or a story came out and it didn't have the intended effect or it had an unforeseen effect. Um, it just seems like everybody who works in this industry has had their own version of the existential crisis that I had when I started making this series. And people want to talk about it. I mean, now that you've had all that feedback, what does this overwhelming response say to you? I mean, it says to me that we haven't been asking enough questions and we haven't been transparent enough about how uncomfortable this is. Like it says that the mythos coding storytelling as this inherently beneficial bomb for the world's problems is is very thin and needs to be interrogated. And I also think we need to be really questioning the way we tell stories. You know, personal stories are really important, but I think that when you turn someone's life into a product, there are repercussions for them, for you, for the profession, and it would serve us well as a collective to complicate the ways that we tell stories. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to play a bit of the show now. Uh, this is from the second episode where you follow one of your documentary subjects, a fashion model named Ernesto. Let's listen. Mayor Ernesto, I need you to describe what we're looking at here. So where are we? Any decent documentarian is able to do their work thanks to a trusty bag of tricks, like getting people to describe things in detail. We're behind the stage at a fashion show. This is a huge show. No, this no, is no, like no. Balenciaga. You do this show, you're going to be seen in Europe a lot. The secret sauce that amps up pretty much any documentary is sound design with a little bit of scoring. 
Buckle up for sound designer Michelle Macklem. Take it away, Mish. All the models are lined up. They're getting their nails done, their hair done, everything done at the same time. They're on their phone taking selfies. And there's photographers getting photos. The production team's running around, getting the looks together. I put on every look. I'm doing a denim skirt with a big utility jacket, a lot of pockets and mesh. Almost everyone's wearing heels. It's a triple runway, three times around. It's like a zigzag. It's chaotic. It's just crazy. But perhaps the most essential tool is editing. Just like Michelle can build up a vibe from scratch, everything you hear in your average documentary has been carefully curated and constructed for many more hours of recording with thousands of invisible internal cuts. So let's go back to Ernesto's description of what he's wearing for the runway, the denim skirt with the utility jacket. Here's the original unedited recording. Yeah, but I put on every book. I think I'm doing a denim dress, skirt type of thing, with a big, um, you know, it's called like a utility jacket, a lot of pockets and mesh. And that became... I'm doing a denim skirt with a big utility jacket, a lot of pockets and mesh. So as you can hear, Ernesto's original take drags a bit. So you don't get the full force of how epic he looks. To create that impact, I snip away all the words I don't need. I'm doing a denim skirt. With a big utility jacket, a lot of pockets and mesh, dress type of thing. Um, you know, it's probably like. I also decide on the order of the clips. This could mean taking a reflection from the end of an interview and sticking it at the beginning to help emphasize a certain angle. Sometimes to flesh out an idea, I'll group clips on a theme from two different interviews together and then pass it off as though it was spoken all in one go. I'm not changing crucial information. I'm just massaging a little. Like I told Ernesto's photographer friend, it's easy to see how editing can change the content and context of what people are talking about. This is part of how story is constructed. And depending on the outlet and imagined audience... Whether it's News at Five or Dateline, these choices, they're going to look different. But even the greatest sound design and most strategic editing don't make a great story. We still need meat. You want to hear about the grimy, the grimy stuff, I guess. Do I? I'm saying that's what you want to hear about more. I mean, I want to hear about all of it. I guess I had some questions about sort of the challenges of the industry. You've talked about a few things, like one of them that you talked about was sort of this feeling of objectification or feeling like certain people expect certain things. Yeah, um, being a model, you are an object at their disposal. They will tell you, show up here tomorrow, and even if you have work, you have to show up, or they will look at you like he doesn't want to model, finding what haircut looks best on me, what walk, and just what style. I should give off to the world what is really me. You or what will sell as you? And that's a, a big controversy in modeling. How many of these people are actually just trying to cater to an audience that they know they can make money out of? And growing up in the Bronx, walking, always told a story. A lot of gangs would limp with a certain foot to express what gang they were with. And sometimes I will tell the designer which walk do you want to see? Do you want to see my walk or do you want to see the model walk? If you look at a lot of fashion shows, models aren't even allowed to 
move their neck or express themselves, it feels very limiting at times when you are a self-proclaimed artist. So I don't know if that's the response you were no, looking for, but I kept it pretty blunt. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, I guess I had some questions about But is it great? On the subway home, something about the fashion angle isn't sitting right with me. At his audition, Ernesto teased all this stuff about the seedy underbelly of a glamorous industry. But the things I found most interesting in the story that began to emerge in the four hours I spent at the fashion show were not so much about Ernesto, but a structural issue in the diversifying fashion industry. How Ernesto and other particularly racialized models are objectified asked to be a canvas for someone else's brand or to commodify their culture for no or very little money. What I hear is a story about how bodies like Ernesto's are being used by the fashion industry and at the same time are going unseen. I think it's rich territory but I'm a white woman from Canada, and there are definitely many people who do a much better job than me of understanding all the nuanced racial dynamics at play in this story. Also, the story is much bigger than Ernesto, and to do it well, I'd need to talk to a lot more people, and I just don't have the production budget to take that on. The series I sold to Radiotopia features personal stories, and that's partially because stories of individuals facing struggles are easier and faster to produce and to deliver on. So now I make an executive decision, a practical and professional one. To stick to the brief of the project, I've now already been partially paid for, to keep the stories contained to the personal and work with the resources I do have access to. I'm gonna ask Ernesto if we can pivot to his addiction story. From Radiotopia Presents, that was shocking, heartbreaking, transformative. Their team includes Michelle Macklem, Sarah Nix, Audrey Martovich, Eliza Niemi, and Mona Hassan. It's written and hosted by Jess Shane, who's with me now. Jess, there's an interesting moment in that clip where you sort of show how the sausage is made and explain how that scene with Ernesto is edited to make it more engaging. Why did you want to include that? I don't know about you, but when I'm watching like reality TV, I can just hear all the dialogue edits. Like I can't really pay attention because I'm like, ooh, they used B-roll there. Like what did they cut out of that sentence to make it smoother? Yeah, that's a voiceover. Like you're not even seeing them talk. They did that in a studio. Yeah. 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 Or they just like chopped things up. And I'm like, how much happened in between? And I, and I think that that only happens for me because I work in this industry. And so what I wanted to do was sort of reveal some of the sleight of hand that happens behind the scenes to turn the messy reality of life into this 30 minute time slot or whatever. Mm. Speaking of producers, it always dawns on me that when we're making things like this, usually there's a host and there's a slew of producers. Often in documentaries and podcasting, the producers are mentioned at the end, but not incorporated into the way that we understand how these 
interviews and series are put together. Do you have a solution on how to better incorporate a team so that they're in front of the story and not behind the story, even though they're producing the story? I mean, that's a great question. There's like this big host culture, which really um, feeds into sort of the cult of genius that happens culturally more broadly. Like everyone loves to feel that there's a singular person that has all these brilliant thoughts Mm -hmm. and they're doing everything. You know, like these hosts are incredibly skilled at being on their feet and like reading and processing information quickly. But yeah, as you said, there's a whole team behind the scenes setting them up for success. And I think that we should do a better job of acknowledging people. But I thought that in this scene, it was a really great opportunity to be like, oh, well, it's not just me. Like, I have an amazing sound designer, Mm -hmm. somebody that's way more skilled than me. Like, I'm going to just show her because this show is all about what happens behind the scenes. Well, I think that's what I mean, like that there's a team. Oftentimes we just hear two people talking and that rapport and the the entire like orchestration of how that interview comes out. There's an entire team behind that kind of putting it together. So it's not just always a one to one conversation. Yeah. And I mean, if you extend that further, it's like it's not just one to one. It's like the one to one maybe in the room. Maybe there's a third producer who's like quietly running the recording equipment. But then like really there's like a whole media institution or distributor. And then behind them, there's like the funders, you know, there's a whole ecosystem that's behind one side of the equation, but it's very deceptive because it feels like a one-to-one relationship. And that's something that I actually go into in the third episode. I talk a lot about sort of like the slippery boundaries between professional and friend and how as audio producers, when we are making documentaries, often what we'll do is we'll find places that make people feel comfortable. We'll be like, let's get a bite. Let's do an interview in your living room because that makes people feel comfortable. That means you get the best, a.k.a. realist tape. And it and it makes people forget that they're being recorded. But then it's like we still have that infrastructure behind us. We're still going to go and take that tape and bring it to this big team, to this big network, to this big distributor, you know, and the person totally loses control. So that intimacy that is created in the casual environment becomes used very quickly in service of something that isn't about intimacy, that isn't about creating a safe space for the person. It's like safe space in service of brand for the producer, profit, you know, based on listeners or if there's advertisers. Mm -hmm. And we're just a bit sneaky about that. Okay, before we let you go, we asked you to pick another podcast to play for us, something that you liked. You chose the show Sounds Gay. Why did you pick this one? I love this show. I feel like it didn't get enough coverage um it's in the title it sounds gay it's all about the intersection of music and like queerness but queerness is never like the topic of the thing like there's no coming out stories each story i think is um doesn't have a formula it follows the needs of the story and i think the episode that i've chosen which is about julius eastman who is um sort of a pioneering black gay composer in minimal music um they don't try to fit him into any box. He was someone who had huge amounts of acclaim, huge amounts of praise, but he actually died unhoused and like kind of alone and has this complicated legacy. And instead of trying to boil his story down into a single narrative, they just told four totally different versions of stories about him from four people who knew him from different parts of his life. And they just don't totally align, but they all just sit beside each other. And I just think that that's a really beautiful and honoring way to 
tell a story, where you're not trying to shave the edges off to make something easy and simple and uncomplicated. Like, I think we should let people be messy. Well, Jess, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today and bringing us this show. It's lovely. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Jess Shane is the host of Shocking, Heartbreaking, Transformative from Radiotopia. And now here's a bit of Julius Eastman's story from the podcast Sounds Gay. When I spoke with Jerry, he told me that his brother faced racist treatment in a number of situations. That, for example, as a college student, Julius had to sleep at the YMCA while his white classmates lived comfortably with patrons of the arts. They wouldn't even take the time to find a rich black person for him to live with. That's how little they gave a about him. We spoke with two white classmates of Julius's who said that this wasn't exactly true. They lived in off-campus apartments. But the spirit of what Jerry said is true, that Julius would have had a harder time finding and affording housing because of systemic racism. This was the 70s, post-civil rights movement. So while landlords could no longer write no black individuals may apply on their ads, housing discrimination was still rampant. And it was quite common for young black and queer people to stay at the Y. Later, as an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo, Julius was fired before he had the chance to go up for tenure. And Jerry said that Julius was repeatedly passed over for gigs that should have been his. Jerry believes that, in the end, Julius was worn down by the racism of the classical music world. He said, F- it. He said, this is, I'm tired of this And, uh, you know, I'm tired of it myself. I'm tired of the American way of living, the George Floyd things, the way the police operate, the way the penal system operates. I'm tired of all of it. In the classical world, the racism is twice as intense as it is anywhere else. I can I can name Grant Stills and a bunch of other great black composers that got overlooked. And then what happens in the, they get very famous posthumously, just like Julius did. He got very now he's the leading, he's the number one poster boy for this music. And it sucks. Why do you think that is with black artists that after they die, everyone starts wanting to celebrate them? Because now they can be exploited by the industry. They didn't want him while he was alive because they would have to pay him. But they have to pay me 50% of what they make now. They were playing his music all over the place, not paying his estate or anything. So I made sure he's getting paid now. Jerry controls Julius's estate, so anyone who performs his music needs to pay Jerry. Jerry feels that the white music world that abandoned Julius the person wants to profit off his music, music that is, at its core, black. It's polyrhythmic. That's totally the African thing. So although he's doing minimalist classical music, it's polyrhythmic. Ding, 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 then you got bell, ding, 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 then you got a tambourine, you know what I mean? 
It's all polyrhythmic. It's all West African. It's very simple. It's black. And that's what makes it so exciting to white people, because white people just love black music. Julius Eastman is part of a long history of black musicians whose work has been embraced by the white musical establishment after their death. These cats are squares. This is Tiana again, the artist. Like, they're not, they're not cool. They're not, like, even really that good at what they do. They just have a particular following. And some of them are playing the music because to play Eastman, to be white and play crazy and play even gives you an edge. What do we do when the white classical music world wants to play edgy music by black musicians who aren't around to benefit from it? Jerry's solution is to make them pay for that edge, whether Julius would have liked it or not. In the symphony that is Julius's life, we've heard four movements from four people, and each highlights a different part of Julius's legacy. It's easy to see how each storyteller relates to certain aspects of Julius. As a fellow composer, Mary Jane Leach chooses to focus on his music. As a black artist who's navigating the art world, Tiana understands how hard it would have been for Julius to do the same. As a former lover, Nemo believes that rather than being a victim of time and place, Julius was in control of his life. After all, that's how he was in their relationship. But I also don't think it's a coincidence that Nemo and Mary Jane Leach, who are both white, tend to de-emphasize the racism Julius experienced and its effects on him. Nor do I think it's a coincidence that Jerry, who is straight, de-emphasized the political nature of his brother's sexual identity. There's so much bull about his gay lifestyle and why there's so many guys that come out and say, before Julius Eastman, I was never going to come out, but after I heard Gay Gorilla and I knew that he was fighting for our rights, and I was like, you got to be kidding. He wasn't fighting for your rights. He was just talking about that he's doing. It's possible to have four different, even contrasting views of the same person, especially if you're a marginalized person like Julius. Being black and queer means showing a different side of yourself in each room that you're in, whether it's the uptown classical music scene or the downtown leather community. The story of Julius's life unfolds like a piece of music. The composer might have a clear intention on the page, but every person who listens comes away with something different. And here lies the issue. In order to make something palatable to the masses, you have to simplify and shave off the edges. When orchestras play Gay Gorilla, are they engaging with the music on a surface level, or are they considering the fullness of Julius's black queer self? The more marginalized the artist, the more often this simplification occurs. Like a cardboard cutout of a human being, a simple shadow cast on a wall. When I started learning about Julius Eastman, it was like that shadow was all I could see. But listening to these four accounts, the person who cast the shadow began to appear. I pictured each story as a beam of light, illuminating a small portion of Julius's form. Not the whole person, but more than I had before. I've come to believe there is no truth of who someone is, especially after they die. All we have are the stories people tell about them.
From Stitcher Studios, that was Sounds Gay. It's created, produced, and hosted by Sarah Esikoff. Their team includes JT Green, Cass Adair, Gianna Palmer, Chris McCormick, and Casey Holford. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. If you had to guess, what would you say are some of Canada's biggest cultural exports? There's hockey, obviously. Music, that's a big one. Shout out to Celine in The weekend. But here's one you might not think of at first. Pornography. Montreal is home to the headquarters of a company called ALO. If you haven't heard of them, well, they own a little website called Pornhub. It's not only one of the most visited porn sites in the world, it's one of the most visited websites, period. A new CBC podcast is tracing the company's history in Canada and how it helped create a world where nearly everyone has instant access to porn. It's called the Pornhub Empire Understood, and it's hosted by tech journalist Samantha Cole. She's with me now to tell us more about this show. Sam, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Hi, thanks for having me. You've been covering the adult industry for several years, and you cover companies like Pornhub in the same way that media covers other tech companies like Google and Apple. Why do you think that's important to do? Yeah, so I mean, for a long time, uh, there was this kind of, I think, shyness about talking about porn as a real industry, uh, especially when we were talking about it on the internet. So I think porn deserves the same kind of criticism, investigations, and support, basically, that newsrooms give to investigations into places like Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these other big tech companies. I mean, porn on the internet, at least, is technology. It's very much an industry that has shaped the way technology works and the way our experience on the internet works. So it seems crazy not to treat it with the same level of rigor that we do all these other industries. What did Pornhub do differently to make themselves into this huge brand that people will talk about openly in mainstream culture? So the biggest thing Pornhub did differently was it gave porn away for free. Um, it was the free porn site. It's where people would go when you know they just wanted to browse around. They weren't really sure what they were looking for. And they made themselves synonymous with that kind of behavior. So they they would let people upload within reason whatever they wanted to the site, you know, within within their terms. But you didn't have to own or prove that you owned whatever you were posting. They used it like YouTube. And that's very much what Pornhub was modeled after in the early days. This was, you know, the 2000s at this point. So it taught people that free porn was something that they can expect from the internet at a time when indie pornographers and webmasters were breaking into the World Wide Web in a way that they were trying to figure out how to monetize their content, how to make a living off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Pornhub said, we don't even need to charge. We can just do ads and have people visit our site by the millions, um, and then that'll be enough. In 2020, 
Pornhub deleted the majority of their content from the site after uh, an investigation found that they were hosting child sexual abuse material and other non-consensual content. How did that impact the company? Yeah, so that was a really big moment in the company's history. There was always this problem across the internet, and this is a this is a problem that happens on lots and lots of different uh, porn sites, non-porn sites, happens on Facebook. But when that came out, I think it brought the problem in general to a lot of people's consciousness, and there was this big uproar about the claims that were happening in this article. So right after that came out, Visa and MasterCard and Discover pulled their services from Pornhub and said, you know, it's too much of a risk. We can't do business with this with this company anymore because of uh, these allegations against it. And these companies haven't come back to Pornhub since. Um, Pornhub went through a really major overhaul of all of its moderation policies. Uh, it stopped allowing anyone to upload whatever they wanted, and you, know, you had to be a verified user. So you had to prove that you owned and that you were the person in the video, or at least that you you had consent from the people in the video to put it on Pornhub. And they wiped out a lot of their unverified content, removed billions of videos for the site. Yeah, it was a really big moment for them. And I think it changed the way that people viewed the company overall in a broader sort of consciousness. And we get into that a little bit more in detail in the podcast, um, and we talked to a few folks who were involved in that, but um, yeah, it was this huge moment of like, wow, uh, things are going on on Pornhub that you know most people had no no idea about all along. And now Pornhub has new owners, Ethical Capital mm-hmm. Partners, and you you sat down with them and you interviewed them for this podcast. What was your impression of them compared to the previous owners? Yeah, well, I mean, the these owners, um, they agreed to sit down with me in New York, and you know, we met in person. And that alone was a huge change from the previous ownership. I never got to actually speak to the previous owners, not for lack of trying on my part. Um, they just weren't a, a very... Um, open or friendly leadership and certainly not depressed. So um, getting to sit down and talk to them and have a frank conversation was a really new step in the coverage of this company. And, um, you know, I found them to be super professional, of course, super media trained, super polished. They knew their stuff. They knew what they were talking about um, when it came to the company that they had bought. And, you know, they're big supporters of porn. Of course, they want the industry to succeed. They want it to be safe. And it's in their interest for it to be safe because, you know, the the whole industry itself is very much under attack from uh, folks who don't want porn to exist, period. So they were definitely very slick, (laughs) very, very practiced. But, you know, it was just it was great to be able to just have that in-person face-to-face conversation with the leadership of a company that previously has been painted as, you know, shady or um, mysterious There's a bill here in Canada going through Parliament right now that would require porn sites to implement age verification systems for users. Some U.S. states have passed similar laws. How much of a threat are these laws to Pornhub and other companies like it? So the the bill that's being discussed in Canada right now is very similar to 
the bills and laws that are happening in the United States. So in some states, Pornhub has completely pulled its services and you can't log on to Pornhub or you can't visit the site at all. If you're in certain states, and it's like Utah, Montana, Virginia, a couple others, you have to use a VPN, which picks a different IP address. Maybe this is getting too technical, but it picks a different IP address and then you can go to Pornhub that way. So you have to have all these workarounds just to visit a porn site. And I think that's kind of where things are heading in general is you're going to have to pull out your ID to visit so much of the internet, which brings up a lot of tricky questions about privacy and security and identity theft and things like that. It's like, do you really want to show your ID every time you just want to look at an adult site or even look at the open web in general? Um, So a lot of these conversations are playing out in real time um, while these laws are are getting pushed through. And the point of these laws is to protect kids. So is there a more effective way of doing that? So the the way that uh, people in the adult industry and people who care about uh, free speech on the internet and our anti-censorship and things like that, um, the way that they have proposed doing this instead is using the parental controls that are already on a lot of devices. So if your kids have a smartphone or like an iPhone, there are usually settings in the phone itself that you know you can say, don't let my kid look at any adult sites, um, categories, specific websites, whatever it is. And I think that's the way that a lot of folks are suggesting we go without having to infringe on adults' use of these sites and their own privacy and rights. The podcast will be coming out soon. What do you want listeners ultimately to take away from this series? I think a lot of folks will learn a lot. Um, <laughs> if you are not at all interested in the topic, you're not into the idea, you don't watch porn, you're not you're not pro-porn, um, I still think it's a good thing to listen to because it brings up a lot of the issues like we've talked about with censorship and the use of the internet and how it's affecting all of us. And you know, we hear from, in this podcast, uh, people who are in the industry directly, so uh, performers and sex workers who are affected by big companies' actions like Pornhub and who, you know, we talked to a few ex-employees and um, we talked to current and former porn performers and people who work in the industry. And I think it's perspectives that maybe don't get heard as often and maybe people aren't as exposed to as frequently. I think it's important to hear from those people before you form opinions about, you know, their work or the industry as a whole. Samantha, I appreciate you joining me today. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Samantha Cole is a tech journalist and co-founder of 404 Media. She's the author of How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. And she's the host of the new CBC podcast, The Pornhub Empire. Understood. We're going to listen to a bit of the first episode now. And just a note to listeners, there's nothing graphic in this clip, but it is about the porn industry and may not be appropriate for all listeners. I suppose it's a bit ironic that a company built on other people stripping down has a history of revealing very little about itself. But the truth is, not much is known about how Pornhub got its start. Most of what we do know comes from two sources. A 2011 profile in New York Magazine written from the AVNs, basically the Oscars of porn, and a more recent piece in Vanity Fair, 
that came out after the now former CEO's Montreal mansion was torched in an unsolved arson attack. Here are the bones of the origin story. Stefan Manos and Wiesem Youssef met at Concordia University. They started dabbling in the online porn world, experimenting with these thumbnail galleries of pictures called TGPs. In 2004, they launched a site called Brazzers. They met Matt Kieser through the world of competitive foosball. Apparently these guys were like really into foosball. And in 2007, they created the YouTube-inspired Pornhub. While this site would come to define porn's future, the story goes that Kieser bought the Pornhub domain from someone he met at the Playboy Mansion, this symbol of porn's past. By 2010, the three were out, having sold their porn assets to a German tech guy. The Germans sold those assets a few years after that, to two of his Montreal managers, plus one reclusive Austrian. But I think it's worth stepping back for a bit now. Let's talk about what the online porn world looked like before Pornhub came on the scene, to get a better sense of how it changed the game. Angie, do you want to do the creation story or do you want me to? Well, we have slightly, uh, we have, we okay, have slightly let me, different. Let me, let me go first and then Angie can. Oh, I was going to go first. Oh, but I've got such a good one. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> when we first started, there literally were, there was nobody. I mean, we didn't know how to connect with people. There were a few other websites out there floating around. There weren't any pay sites yet. Um, Colin stumbled into the world of online porn almost by accident. His wife, Angie, had a mail order catalog where she sold new agey trinkets and like Celtic jewelry. In the 90s, they put that catalog online. One day, they're at a trade show type event for the catalog and Colin wanders by a booth called Babylon Leather, which sold BDSM accessories. I said to the guy, I said, you know, do you have some photos of this sort of stuff that I could start a mail order catalog on that and you could be our supplier? He said, absolutely. So he gave me like, yeah, I don't know, maybe 18 or 20, you know, very nice photos of pretty girls in leather with their boobs half out and collars and cups and things like that. And I had a friend, cause we had to somehow digitize them. Um, this was before anybody ever had a scanner. So I had a friend who worked at a mental institution in Massachusetts as an attendant. And he said, oh, I, I can scan those for you. I can sneak into the office and do it. So he- His buddy scans the photos. The photos go in the online mail order catalog. Creating. And, you know, mail order catalog never really did very well, but people were going there and looking at the pictures because we were paying an arm and a leg in bandwidth fees. Um, so we're getting bombarded with, you know, people, you know, going to the website to look at the pictures of the 18 pretty girls. So I said, you know, I said, Addy, do you think maybe we should maybe charge people to look at these pictures? And she says, well, that'd be, yeah, that'd be nice, but who's, who's going to do that? I said, well, let's try it. So, you know, we put up a thing, you know, 10 bucks, 10 bucks to look at all the, look at everything. We lost it like on a Thursday afternoon with a way to get a hold of us by fax and by phone and by email. And the next morning we woke up to like $360 worth of $10 sales. It was amazing. I was like, whoa, I think we just gave my been onto something. So literally that's how wasteland.com was born. He got it actually pretty close. Good job, honey. <laughs> 
Wasteland was one of the very first so-called pay sites where you could go and pay to look at porn online. This was 1994. By 1997, enough of an industry had started to crop up that online pornographers and webmasters had their own little trade show, kind of like the fateful one where Angie and Colin came across the leather booth, but for internet porn. The first show, we went down to Secaucus, New Jersey, and it looked like it was always at a Hilton. That's cool. But we get there, and the place still had the Hilton sign on it, but it had gone bankrupt some years before and was owned privately but not maintained. Oh, it's horrible. So we go in, and the place is basically kind of a dump. There were no screens in the windows. There was one big room that, like, 50 or 60 of us all met every day for these group talks and presentations and people giving little workshops. And then we went back up to the room after the first night, and the room was completely filled with these massive mayflies that came out of the Secaucus swamp, filled the entire room. So we're smacking bugs and trying to figure out how to get the window closed. And so I think that was one of the, I think that may have been the first show we went to. And then, then they these industry out. events wouldn't stay swampy for long. The online porn business continued to grow. Angie starts her own site, specifically catering to women, called shush.com. And by the early aughts, life was good for the couple. 2005 and 2006 were, those were really, really good years. You know, basically the big ramp up and, you know, when money, you know, rained down from the sky, started around 2001 through like 2005. I can't really Audiences would gladly pay to see what Angie and Colin had up on their sites, which by this point had evolved beyond scanned photos of women in leather corsets to hardcore videos. Imagine what an exciting time this must have been for the porn curious. For years, the only real way to get your hands on any adult material would have been to face a clerk at a corner store and buy a raunchy magazine or duck into the curtained back room of a video rental shop. Now you could type in your credit card information from the privacy of your own home. So it wasn't just Colin and Angie who were doing well. The whole online porn industry was thriving. But Angie saw trouble on the horizon. I can remember one of the trade shows. Somebody said, I've got a great idea. I put together a meeting. It was like the original seven or eight site owners, right? And we have a proposal for you. So we go into this back room at this hotel and they're talking to us about TGPs, thumbnail galleries. And they're saying, this is the new big thing. And we were all squawking going, no, no, no. We're not going to give away free content. And that was just pictures. And they said, well, you don't have to give away anything explicit. It's just kind of the lead up and they don't have to be really big. And then we have a link over to your site and then people can go see the rest of it. And we were squawking at that. And I think everybody knew if we started with the pictures, how long would it be until it was video? And we all knew where it was going to go. From CBC, that was a clip from the Pornhub Empire. Understood. If you want to hear the rest of that episode, the show launches March 11th. Follow it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss it when it drops. 
The show is hosted by Samantha Cole. Their team includes Imogen Burchard, Sam Connert, Julia Whitman, and Nick McCabe-Locos. Remember the BP oil spill? It happened in 2010, off the Gulf of Mexico. Here's how most of us probably remember it. There was an explosion on board the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig, which caused millions of barrels of oil to spill into the ocean. Over that summer, there was a massive mobilization to contain and clean up the oil spill. And though it caused terrible damage, it was contained within a few months, and the worst-case scenario was avoided. And all the people and animals and fish of the Gulf Coast lived happily ever after. Well... That's not the full story, of course, because it wasn't just any oil spill. The Deepwater Horizon disaster was the worst oil spill in history. And 14 years later, the effects are still ongoing. The podcast Ripple is a new series looking at the lingering impacts of stories we thought were over. And for their first season, they're revisiting the BP oil spill. Here's a little bit from episode one. The Gulf of Mexico has a lot of things in it that I personally enjoy eating. Blue crab, shrimp, mullet, oysters, the list goes on. Catching them and bringing them to market for people like me to eat is how tens of thousands of people made their living on the Gulf in 2010. At the very peak of the spill, some 89,000 square miles of federal waters were closed for fishing. The impact of this was devastating and immediate. I learned this on Company Canal. I know people right now that lost their homes. They lived off the land. That's what they did for a living, commercial fishing, commercial crabbing. Hell, I mean, I even got family members that crabbed and stuff like that. They all had to stop. I mean, a lot of people don't understand really what happened. We're still having it to this day. Cool, that's a nice one. That's a bullfrog. That's a chicken leg right there. That's what we call chicken leg. You look hungry. Frog legs. Well, did, oh, did, you stop, did you stop eating the seafood for a while? Or no? After, we had after to. BP, you had to? Oh, man, I went to freaking beef, bro. It's like, ugh. I mean, Lord knows and God knows, everybody knows we all did it in Louisiana. All of us went bullying once or twice in our life. Well, I'm man enough to say it. I know game wardens. It is what it is. Wait, 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 hold on. I'm, 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 I'm lost in translation here. Mm. Explain to me what you just said. Bullying? That's illegal. Is it? Well, I ain't gonna lie, man. Edit. 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 <laughs> this is back in the day. We're going to say it like oh, that. So you, you, oh, yeah, this is you, way you back need, in the day. You need food and you had to go do some oh, illegal dude, I'm not. I'm yourself. not going to let my family starve. Before I let my family go hungry, I'm, I'm going to do something about them. I'm not letting my family starve. With no way to make a living and all efforts to stop the raging oil failing, coastal residents started protesting. Amidst the growing unrest, BP made Gulf Coast residents an offer, or, as they called it, an opportunity. This is a recruiter at an open house in Lafitte, Louisiana. Well, we're working with a program called Vessels of Opportunity, and it's just that. It's an opportunity for fishermen uh, to put their boats to work in a time when, unfortunately, they're not able to conduct their normal operations. So as far as Vessels of Opportunity goes, of course, it's uh, administered through BP. Vessels of Opportunity, or the VU program, was basically this arrangement. 
Since you can't do what you do, come work for us instead. Help BP clean up the oil. We'll pay you to clean up the oil. Thousands took the offer. Or the opportunity. So, um, Caleb, bro. Um, I've been living in Louisiana all my life. I am part of the culture. <laughs> I am part of Louisiana. Caleb Bro had a landscaping company that did most of its business in a barrier island town called Grand Isle, Louisiana. With landscaping, it's a luxury, so nobody was doing landscaping. You know, normal life just kind of came to a halt. So he joined a friend's boat crew and signed up for the Vessels of Opportunity, hoping to make a difference on the cleanup. We're always here to help each other through storms, through spills, through anything. You always see Louisianians helping each other. I mean, that's what we do. And what was your job? Like, what was your day-to-day like? What were you actually out there doing? So our main job at the beginning, we were putting out a hard and soft boom. You're going to hear this word a lot, boom. Soft boom is a rolled-up absorbent material used for cleaning spills. Imagine a giant anaconda wearing a giant sock. It can be hundreds of feet long, it's laid in the ocean, and the idea with soft boom is... Soft boom soaks up oil, thus cleaning the spill. Then there's also hard boom, made of plastic or metal, which traps the oil in a designated area. And we were anchoring them out and and putting uh, stakes in the ground and prepping for it to come in, you know, uh, waiting for the the big bang, so to speak. Because we knew it was coming. It was almost like waiting for a hurricane. You know, um, we knew it was out there. We were getting reports of where it was at and... So that was, that was our main job at the beginning, is just getting ready. Hundreds of miles east, in Destin, Florida, a commercial fisherman named Joey Yerkes was also bracing himself for the arrival of the oil. So the Gulf was closed. We couldn't fish. We were out of work. Joey had been a cast net fisherman. He caught cigar minnows, a small fish good for baiting grouper and snapper. Um, we were actually activated in the VOO program and being paid every day. Even if we didn't go on the water, we were being paid to stand by. So okay, so we were ready. You know, we were 100% ready. Back in Louisiana, patches of oil were beginning to wash up on shore. They would send us out to try to collect the patches, and we would actually uh, connect soft boom from one boat to the other, and we'd drag, almost like dragging a trawl, and to encompass the oil. When a boom would fill up with oil, they'd pull it out of the water, then transfer the boom into garbage bags for disposal. It was a kind of a constant cleanup process, you know. Uh, we were on Charlie Company, which we were kind of proud of. Uh, we called ourselves the hardest workers out there, you know, all of us Cajuns in the, in the boats. Did you feel like you were making progress or, or no? Yeah, I mean, somewhat we were. I mean, we could tell what, what areas were hit, and you start picking up the, the boom, uh, the soft boom that had a lot of oil on it. It felt like it was helping a little bit. For Caleb Bro, the situation seemed bad, but not as bad as he was expecting. He had hope that if everyone just kept working and working, they would save the Gulf. Over in Florida, Joey had that same spirit. He was raring to fight the spill, and his wait was over. Then they finally called us up, right? As of tomorrow morning, you are activated and going to be in the field. I said, great, you know, we celebrate. Here we go. We get to do something, you know. We took off and went out the pass, and we, we went down the ocean side. And we decided just to drive west and see if we saw any oil. We really didn't expect to see much, and I had my depth sounder on at the time. 
A depth sounder is a tool that uses sonar to display on a screen how deep the water is beneath your boat. And I'll never forget the depth sounder, just the screen just went black, completely black, top to bottom. So we really couldn't figure out what was going on. We went a little bit further, a little bit further, and we started to smell it. Then we looked over the side and realized that we had run into a wall of oil coming. Makes me upset when I talk about this. <clears throat> so that was a wall of oil that was heading towards our home. And that was an oh moment. Uh, my deckhand and I, I mean, both broke down. We just started crying, right? This was way bigger than we ever imagined it would be. Because we were only hearing stories. They were, you know, it's not as bad as everybody says. We ran into that wall of oil. That really hit me. We knew that, that our ocean that we love so much was in big, big trouble. From Western Sound and APM Studios, that was the podcast Ripple. It's hosted by Dan Leone. Their team includes Betsy Shepard, Colin McNulty, Alex McGinnis, Sarah Dealey, Stella Hartman, Savannah Wright, and Haley Fox. And that's it for Podcast Playlist this week. If you like what you heard, you can find links and more info on everything we played today at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast Playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Our intern is Ailey Yamamoto. Technical support from Lauda Antonelli. The senior producer of Podcast Playlist is Kate Evans and executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.